Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5, New Testament, Matthew 5. And uh, if you're a guest uh, with us today, just so you know what we're doing, um, we're in a series right now called Blessed. It's a study, basically a study of eight statements that Jesus made in his Sermon on the Mount, statements known as the Beatitudes. That word beatitude comes from a Latin meaning blessed or happy. So these are sort of the blessed or the happy statements. And with these statements, Jesus called his followers to a way of life that um, runs contrary not just to the norms of culture, but the norms of human nature. And um, Matthew says that one day on a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sat down and he began to teach a large crowd of people. And I want us to keep in mind who exactly these people were. They were first century Israelites, right? They were Jewish men and women who by and large had developed an approach to God uh, that centered in and around religious piety, precise rituals, and an, uh, a legislated morality that placed an emphasis on uh, external compliance. In other words, uh, people figured as long as they kept the rules as best they could and stayed ceremonially um, active, God would, um, God would be impressed with their efforts and their good performance would bring about good results. But Jesus came along and he just shook things up. I mean, he just shook things up, especially when he started teaching about how God's number one concern is not what's happening on the outside of a person, but what's happening on the inside. Because it's somewhat easy to look spiritual, keeping religious rules and regulations, but you can't fool God when it comes to the true condition of your heart. In the Old Testament, God made that pretty clear. He said, he said, I, the Lord, I don't look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance. He said, I, the Lord, I, I look at the heart. That's what matters most. Jesus pressed that reality one day when he confronted some religious professionals, and he said to them, he goes, you know, you, some of you guys are like whitewashed tombs, which look neat and clean and beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're filthy. You're, you're, you're full of the bones of the dead every, and everything unclean. Here's my Reiki translation. Jesus said, you stink of hypocrisy. You reek of religiosity. Sure, you're doing, you're doing the external type religious things, but, but internally your spirits remain dead, you know, untouched. And so Jesus focused his teaching, at least here in, in the Sermon on the Mount, on matters of the heart. He wanted his listeners to know that it's not enough to be externally compliant with religious regulations when there's, when there's a deep need in the heart for spiritual transformation and renewal. And so he started off saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Basically, Jesus said, anyone who acknowledges their spiritual bankruptcy before God will find happiness, favor, and eternal life. He continued, he said, Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Uh, and mourning ref it refers to and describes our emotional response to, to the reality of our sinful condition. And then Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And last week we said meekness is defined as a life devoid of arrogance, revealed by our dependency on the grace of God and demonstrated through our patience, our forgiveness, our compassion, and our service to others, even those who mistreat us. And then Jesus went on to make this statement. He said, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, 
just as he did in his three previous statements, Jesus uses a couple terms here that would have made his listeners somewhat uneasy. You know, similar to ideas about being poor and, and mournful and meek, um, how those would shock people. So the concepts of um, hunger and thirst no doubt got a reaction because like those other qualities he mentions, being hungry and thirsty is not a condition most of us are looking to attain. Right? It's not what we're shooting for. Um, whether you're a first century Israelite or a 21st century American makes no difference. As human beings, hunger and thirst are things we instinctively avoid you know, for the sake of survival. And so when Jesus makes the statement, I'm guessing there was a negative reaction or at least a confused one. I mean, understand, for people in the ancient Near East, um, hunger and thirst were familiar problems. You know, that's not the case for the majority of us today in America is. It's not really. I mean, our, for most of us, our idea of hunger is an 11.45 a.m. hankering for a Jimmy John's ultimate porker. You know what I mean? Uh, right? let's, let's just be honest about it. I mean, for most of us, if we, if we go three hours without putting something in our mouths, we feel like we're starving. Even now, breakfast is wearing off. Some of us are thinking about lunch, right? Maybe we'll stop at Lou Malnati's on the way home. Pick up a pie. Then later, we'll have an early sunny dinner. Eat some nachos while we watch the uh, NBA playoffs. Munch on something else during Downton Abbey reruns and uh, grab a snack before bed, you know, to tide us over the morning. You say, hey, Ray, don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not judging you. I do the same thing. I love food. It loves me. Um, I'm just saying that I, we, I think it's safe to say, really know, really don't know what true hunger is. Not the, not the kind Jesus was was uh, talking about, because I mean, when he used the term hunger, his listeners knew exactly what he was referring to. He was referring to a Sudan, Darfur, famine-type ravaging hunger. See, in first century Israel, it was common for a large, popular, uh, a large segment of the population to be day laborers. In other words, a person would get up in the morning and go out and try to find some work, you know, maybe in a vineyard at a construction site, maybe jump on a boat to help out with fishing or mending nets or something, whatever, to earn a day's wage so then they could go buy food and eat. And with that economic reality in place, a lot of people had what we would call today a food insecure status. In other words, they weren't sure if, when, or where the next meal was, going, was, was coming from. So if there, if there was no work, individuals would go hungry. Sometimes families would go hungry. People didn't have you know, hot pockets stashed in the freezer to bank on. They didn't have that. Most families survived day to day under a legitimate threat of starvation. So this crowd knew what, what being hungry was. They also knew what it meant to be thirsty. Back in February, I had a chance to go to Israel. And I can tell you this, modern-day Israeli Israelis don't worry about going thirsty because you can drive through pretty desolate areas of the country and find Bedouins selling Cokes and bottled water on the side of the road. You know, people there today, you know, for them going thirsty really isn't a threat. But in Jesus' day it was. Water was a valuable commodity. And when people traveled the region, there were no Walgreens to stop at and buy a bottle of Avion. You know, they, sometimes water was scarce and so uh, refreshment was a long way off. Here's my point. Jesus' listeners knew, experientially they knew, what true hunger and thirst were like. And therefore they understood the passionate desire and longing Jesus was talking about. He basically says, blessed are those who have an insatiable craving. But then came the real twist. Because uh, he does, Jesus doesn't talk about 
uh, craving food or drink, or having an insatiable passion for power, money, pleasure, or fame. Jesus says, happy are those who crave righteousness. Righteousness. I don't know if you've read this or seen it or even know about it, but last month the 2016 World Happiness Report was published by the United Nations. We were mentioning earlier, for a book about happiness, the cover's pretty bland, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but this comes out each year, and uh, it's a report. Um, uh, the report contains study data um, collected from over 150 countries, data that measures people's sense of well-being and happiness. And this year... Uh, Denmark came in number one as the number one happiest people. Um, the nation, African nation of Burundi came in last at 157, and the U.S. came in at number 13. And it's, interesting, it's, it's an interesting document to read and look at and all the stats and stuff. But for me, the very fact that we have this document demonstrates that all over the globe, men and women from every nation and in every culture are looking for happiness. You know, they're looking for it. In many cases, they pursue it with reckless abandon. Happiness is the goal. It's the, it's the ultimate global human objective. And yet, I'm not sure anyone's quick to describe our world as a particularly happy place. Why not? Well, according to Jesus, it's because we've got it all backwards. We've got it backwards. As human beings, we err in placing happiness ahead of holiness. What do I mean by that? Well, the message of Scripture from beginning to end um, is that happiness and the pursuit of it is not, at least should not be, the goal of our existence. True happiness is the result of pursuing something else, namely righteousness. Je think about it. Jesus didn't tell his listeners, happy are those who crave happiness. Right? He didn't say that. He said, happy are those who crave, desire, pursue righteousness. They're the ones who, tr who, who, who find true joy and fulfillment. You say, well, okay, but what is righteousness? That sounds a little weird to me. That sounds so celestial and unattainable. Well, in an effort to describe it at its most base level, here's my, here's my Ray K translation. Jesus says, blessed, happy are those who get right with God. That's essentially what he's saying. See, as human beings, we were never intended to exist outside a relationship with our Creator. And yet our propensity is to ignore him or to rebel against what he says is right and good and healthy and safe and, and best for us as created beings. We ignore him. We, we rebel. We violate his will, his wisdom, i.e. we sin. And when we do, we betray the God who loves us. And as a result, we, we experience a deep sense of alienation, you know, this this deep emptiness. On some level, we know something serious is missing. Something is missing from our lives, and we're troubled by it. We're haunted by it, and we go on a lifelong search to find it, to find what we think is happiness and fulfillment. The same search was going on in first century Israel. You know, men and women, rich, poor, powerful, marginalized, religious, irreligious, people from all walks of life, they came to Jesus and they said, we, where can we find happiness? Where can I find it? I've done the education deal. I've done the career thing, the dating scene. I've, I've got friends. I've got some family. I may even have some money uh, put aside. I've got some influence. My life is filled with a whole bunch of stuff. I, I'm trying to be a good person, as good as I can possibly be, but I still feel empty. Happiness eludes me. What's my problem? Jesus said, you're pursuing the wrong thing. 
He said, you need to pursue God. Pursue getting right with him. And they say, well, how? You know, I've tried religion. I've tried to keep all the rules, but I can't do it. And it's crushing me. It's killing me. People in our culture today are saying the exact same things. I mean, we have men and women who come in our doors every week with questions about life, meaning, joy, fulfillment. They want to they find what's missing. They know something's missing. They wanna, they wanna, they're tired of the emptiness. They, they believe in God, but feel spiritually disconnected. They want to be connected. In fact, if that describes you this morning, Jesus says you blessed are you who crave to be right with God. That's a good thing. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul He explained it this way. He said, this righteousness, this righteousness is given to us through faith in Jesus and it's given to everyone who believes. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Now, I don't want you to miss this because Paul never suggests it and most certainly Jesus never said it. Neither said it's the one who attains righteousness. They don't say that. It's not the one who attains it or earns it. It's the one who hungers for it and simply receives it from God. So happy are those who crave to be right with him. But in a secondary sense, you know, Jesus' statement applies to those of us who consider ourselves already followers of Jesus. We've, al- we've already recognized what's missing. We've accepted him. We've we, you know, we've, we've experienced God's grace, but we don't want to settle for a half-baked, half-hearted, lukewarm Christianity. And Jesus says, that's a good thing too. He said, that's a good thing too. Happy are you who crave an ongoing inward transformation. Blessed are you who long uh, uh, not only to be right with God, but to live right before God and one another. You who desire lives that flourish with hope and honesty, service, generosity, and worship, all of those things uh, that give us a greater sense of closeness to God. Is that what we want? I mean, is that what you want this morning? I mean, why are we here? What, what are you here for? To fulfill a perceived religious requirement? Or, you know, it's kind of a Sunday habit? Or do you come in with a hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness? I don't know. I mean, I can't answer that question. Only you and God knows what's true. And so in keeping with this um, hunger-thirst metaphor, let me ask you this. How is your spiritual appetite today? You know, uh, i got to tell you, over years I've adopted some weird eating habits. I'm trying to curb them. I'm working on it. But basically, this is how it goes. I don't, I hate, I'll get up, have coffee. I, didn't, I would never eat breakfast, wouldn't eat lunch, go through the day feeling fine, get home, sniff food, and go crazy. You know what I mean? I get home, I, I'd like an animal. I'd be like an animal. I'd eat anything I could find. I'd shove it in my face, feeding frenzy, not a pretty sight. Uh, and if 6 o'clock comes around, and I'm not rummaging through cabinets, stalking the refrigerator, or cooking something. My wife Marjorie will look at me and she go, "Are you all right? Are you all right?" See, you don't have to be a, a, a you don't have to be a doctor to know that when a person has a loss of appetite, it's an indicator of something. Uh, mild sickness, serious disease, maybe. 
But it's a signal. It's a signal that something's not right on the inside. Which is why when we hear about someone who's been sick for a while, we hear they're getting their appetite back. We're excited. We're like, that's good news because a good appetite is a sign of health. The same is true in our spiritual lives. If you have no spiritual appetite, something may be amiss. I mean, if, if you lack a desire for God and your attitude is, ah, I could take him or leave him. Um, or when it comes to community like this, ah, I could take it or leave it. Or when it comes to prayer or worship or, or, or reading the scriptures, ah, I could take it or leave it. There may be a problem. There may be a problem. When, when was the last time we bowed our heads and said, Lord, we, I need more of you in my life. I really need more of you in my life. Or we prayed, God, what can I give to you in return for all that you've given me, all that you've done for me? When was the last time we, we, we took a long, hard look at all the ugly stuff in our lives and admitted, Lord, I'm struggling with this stuff. And I, I know it's wounding to you. And I don't, I, don't, I don't want to do it anymore. Help me. Does any of that sound familiar? I was thinking about it more this week, this whole idea of spiritual appetite. And it kind of dawned on me, you know what kills spiritual appetite? Sin. It decimates it. Disobedience to God in matters of conscience, family, serving, finances, work, peer relationships... And I, look, and I'm not just talking about the, you know, the big, dramatic, major league sins. Really, I'm talking even more about the subtle, easy-to-conceal ones. The selfish ambitions, the lustful thoughts, the judgmental attitudes, the, the bigotry, the racism, the dishonesty, the greed, critical spirit, gossip. It's the things you do, but you know you shouldn't as well as the things you don't do, but you know you should. Sins of omission and commission. And here's the reality. Acts of rebellion toward God, in whatever form they take, no matter how overt or clandestine, will at best suppress and at worst kill your spiritual appetite. They will. They'll kill it. I mean, seriously, think about it. When you're involved in, in, in a behavior that you know is wrong, how interested are you in praying? Not very. Or if our lives are full of rebellion, do we really want to read the scriptures? Mm -mm, not so much. If we're participating in some unethical activities at work or some other, just some things we just know are plain wrong, do we really want to hang out with other Christians? Come in here and start singing worship tunes? Mm -mm. Make no mistake, sin will affect, to one degree or another, your spiritual appetite. Which is why the Apostle John in the New Testament, he writes a letter to the church and he says to Christians, stop sinning. Cut it out. Just stop it. But John was wise enough to know that simply eliminating a sinful attitude or behavior won't cure an ailing spiritual appetite. It won't. What will cure it? Confession. John says, confess your sins. And just know that he wasn't talking about going into a private room with a religious professional in an attempt to find absolution. He, he, he was talking about listening to what the Scripture says, understanding how we're ignoring God, and how we're violating His will for our lives, 
It means slowing down and, and, and maybe backing up three beatitudes and acknowledging our spiritual poverty and mourn over our sin and how we've, how we've wounded God and betrayed our relationship and ignored him. It's saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want sin to control my life. My behavior's wrong. My attitude's messed up. My ambition for money is way out of control. My pursuit of pleasure is twisted. My commitment to acquiring more and more stuff in life has caused me just to toss you the crumbs. I mean, whatever it is, whatever it is, confession has a way of reigniting our spiritual hunger. But the second thing that helps cure an ailing appetite is the rejection of false righteousness. What's false righteousness? Well, there's a lot of it around in Jesus' day among the religious people. It's around today in churches. It's where we as Christians begin to think so much more highly of ourselves and start believing our own press. Like, I'm okay. I'm least, at least I'm better than that guy over there and that woman over there. I'm not bad. Not too bad. It's when we start to see our good works as worthy of God's respect, of his attention. In the Old Testament, there's a, a prophet named Isaiah who God used in some very unique and powerful ways. But what I like about Isaiah, he tended to keep it real. He, he, he tended to keep it all in perspective. And I remember one time Isaiah says, God, I realize all my righteous acts are like filthy rags when compared to your holiness. Sometimes we lose that perspective. I lose that perspective. I'm just telling you, I do. Sometimes I approach God with such an attitude of entitlement and, and, and self-importance. It's like, hey Lord, it's me, Ray Kay here. Uh, need something from you. Just, just want to point out here, take a look at me. I'm a pretty good guy. Loyal, committed, faithful, doing all kinds of stuff for you, really good stuff. Uh, I mean, really, if you can't bless me, who can you bless? Right? <laughs> what is that, man? What is that? That is a twisted, warped, you know, uh, immature attitude. That's messed up thinking. What I need always to pray is this, Lord be merciful to me, a broken and warped human being. That's perspective. I mean, how are you praying? Hey God, hey I've been regular at church the last three weeks, uh, even thinking about going into a life group. Uh, worked in the nursery. That was rough, you know. <laughs> Parked a few cars last Sunday, doing this, doing that. Give a little bit every now and then. So, hey, how about you lay it on me, man? Let's have a few blessings thrown my way. Need a car. I need some profit margin. I need something from you, and I'm pretty sure I've earned it. I'm entitled to it. Here's the deal. You and me, we're entitled to nothing. We are entitled to, we deserve nada. What we view in our lives as impressive and honorable under the spotlight of God's perfection and holiness, they don't measure up. So let's keep it in perspective. Everything we have, everything we have is because of God's grace. Everything. The breath you just took is because of God's grace. So confession of sin and the rejection of false righteousness 
Those things cure ailing appetites. But what stimulates them? What keeps us hungry and thirsty? I think there are a couple things. First, exercise. You say, what do you mean exercise? Well, physically speaking, you know, when we work out, if we work out, right, it stimulates our desire for food and, and water, for nourishment, right? Well, in the same way, spiritual exercise stimulates our inner hunger and thirst for God and righteousness, like, for example, if you, you decide that tomorrow, tomorrow you're going to get up and you're going to go out and you're going to do the best you can do to love and extend grace to the people you interact with at work, at school, uh, in your neighborhood, at Starbucks, wherever you go, whatever you do. If you see somebody in need and you say, man, I am going to reach out, I'm going to take a risk, I'm going to reach out, I'm going to help that person. If you commit yourself to being a loyal friend, you know, a faithful husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, if you make an effort to be a great neighbor in your community, if you dedicate yourself to serve and use the unique gifts and talents and resources that God, by His grace, has given you for the benefit of others inside and outside these walls, if you live that way over the next seven days, I'm telling you, on Sunday, you're going to run in here and say, Lord, I'm spiritually hungry and thirsty. I need more of you. And suddenly our time together takes on a whole new dynamic. Prayer becomes essential. Studying God's word together, learning what he says about life and all that it entails. It won't be theoretical anymore. It'll be practical. And it'll help prepare us and equip us and inspire us here to go back out there and continue to make a spiritual difference. It's one of the reasons why, you know, at the end of this month on the 29th, why we're, we're not having our services here in the morning. We're going to go out all over DuPage County and serve other people. We're going to exercise. And at the end of the day, somewhere around 6 o'clock, I think we're all going to try to come back in here. And I think we're going to say, Lord, that was, that was pretty amazing, but we need more of you. Another thing that keeps us hungry is Community hanging out with other hungry people. You realize uh, hunger is contagious, right? Uh, last night, <clears throat> my, my son-in-law and daughter uh, came down uh, to spend the evening and we were out. And I was thinking about this. This was in the back of my head. And I was thinking about how when, when our kids were little and we'd go on vacation driving somewhere, you know, I'll be in the driving seat, they'd be in the back seat, and like, we gotta go to the bathroom. I'm like, uh, no, I'm good for another 3,000 miles. Just be quiet, you know? <laughs> no bathroom. We're not stopping in the bathroom. Or, but if they said, we're hungry... Let's go to Portillo's. Suddenly I'm craving a hot dog. And I'm turning to try to find some place similar to Portillo's. Uh, what that tells me is that when you hang around hungry people, you tend to get hungry. The same is true spiritually. You know, Spend time with those who hunger and thirst for God and you'll start craving him too. The Apostle Paul, he wrote the church, he put it this way, he said, you know, bad company corrupts good character, which is the same as saying good company, healthy company, influences and corrects bad character. So understand, healthy, authentic community is critical to spiritual nourishment, encouragement and transformation. It is. Most people in churches today say they want it. They want community. They want meaningful relationships that are going to help them move forward in their faith and they can help others. We say we want it, but because it involves time and accountability and commitment, we tend to run away from it to our own detriment. We need community. 
more than just an hour on Sunday morning. We need it through the week, which is why Pastor Kim Whetstone is leading us to, tr- to try to establish more and more life groups throughout the week that can meet and, and, and people can be together and study and pray and encourage and support one another. It's sort of like the midweek inspiration. We need it. Which leads to a third thing that keeps us hungry, and that's corporate worship. See, the more we get to know God, the more we want to know Him. The more we get together and affirm His His love and power, the more we acknowledge His Spirit's work among us, the more we teach and read and sing and pray and talk about the grace of God and forgiveness He offers and how this offer of grace and forgiveness is, is for everybody, our world, everywhere from here in DuPage County to Central Africa. Uh, the more we want to give of ourselves and our resources to the mission of bringing that good news to the people around us. And what's the result, man? What's the result of of having a healthy spiritual appetite? What's the result of this hunger and thirsting for righteousness? It's simple. Ultimate gratification. Right? I mean, Jesus said, he says, if you're just doing the external religious thing and your desire is more for the world's commodities, in the end you'll be left empty and wanting. But if you crave righteousness... If deep in your heart and soul there is a true hunger and thirst to be right with God and live right before God, you will be satiated. Elsewhere in the same, later on in the same sermon, Jesus put it this way, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. So now here's the deal. I can't answer the question for you. Only you and God know the truth. But here's the question. How hungry and thirsty are you this morning? And what are you hungering and thirsting for? Hmm? It's, it's seriously worth thinking about. Because Jesus said, in my kingdom, blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we recognize that um, and, I, and we celebrate the fact that you don't judge on outward appearance. You, you, don't, you don't look at the things that we look at. Dress, color of our skin, the way we walk, talk. What, what, you, don't, you look at what's in the heart. And right this moment, you, you know what's true in our lives. And mine... And in every person here, you know what's right and what's true. There's no hiding from you. And I I ask God that you would give us the courage to admit what's true. Perhaps Perhaps we've been hungering and thirsting after everything else except you. I don't know. I don't know what's going on inside my friends here, but you do. And so, um, do a work within us. I pray that you would reignite in us a hunger and thirst for you, our God. And um, please know that we love you and are grateful for your your grace in our lives. And even as we um, we offer these these gifts to you this morning as an expression of our love, I pray that even as we give you would see our hearts welling up with gratitude and generosity 
and really just saying, you've done so much for us, what can we do for you, our God? And give us that deep desire to bring this news of love and grace in Jesus to people in our world. Come, Holy Spirit, change us, we pray, from the inside out. We ask these things in Jesus' name. So I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that God doesn't look at outward appearance because I don't have much to offer. <laughs> but uh, he looks at the heart, and that's what matters to him. And um, it's important for us to keep that in mind. One other thing I just want to make sure we're, we're clear on. I, I, I mentioned it earlier, but this, Christianity, it's not about you attaining righteousness, right? You get that. Jesus doesn't say, happy are those who attain righteousness, who, who earn it who achieve it somehow. That's religion. That's what crushes people. Jesus said, no, happy are those who pursue it and receive it, i.e. receive the grace of God offered in him. That's what Christianity is about. That's, uh, that's what makes the news so good. That you don't have to achieve anything. You just receive. And... Uh, I hope you guys get that, and if you have questions about it, talk to someone you know from Parkview or following the service. Some of our prayer team folks will be up front. You can come down and talk with them. But, um, or maybe you just had a rough week and need someone to chat with. They're here for you as well. Come back next Sunday. We're going to continue on, and there's going to be a shift in these statements. Uh, there's something different happens between statement four and five, so we're going to talk a little bit about that next week. And uh, don't forget to sign up for uh, Everybody Does. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go out and we're going to serve the community. We're going to love people in Jesus' name. And uh, it's going to be a great experience. We're going to get exercise. And, uh, and then we're going to come back in on Sunday night and worship. So it's going to be fun. So make sure you stop and, and sign up, okay? Let me pray for us and then we're dismissed. And now, Lord, I pray that as we go uh, back to our homes, to our schools, to our jobs, to our neighborhoods, to friends and family, um, May our hearts be full today. And may this week, may we live in such a way to point people to you and, and, and in the middle of the week get together and encourage one another and inspire one another forward and then bring us back here next week. Um, give us a hunger and thirst for you, our God, every day. May your hand of grace and peace now rest on your people, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. See you next week.